0: Hi, I'm Teresa Weizar, your host of One in Ten. In today's episode, sexual behavior in youth, what's normal, what's not, and what can we do about it? I talk with Jane Solovsky, director of the National Center on the Sexual Behavior of Youth. When we first met years ago, talking about youth with problematic sexual behaviors, We somehow connected because there was a pervasive myth in the Children's Advocacy Center world that CACs could not serve these kids. Somehow they weren't our kids, somehow they weren't deserving of help, or somehow they just weren't ours to serve. But I knew that 25 to 30% of our cases each year involved youth sexually abusing or acting out on other kids. And really to make any difference at all in that work, we had to serve these kids. This was meaningful prevention work right from the very start. We found Jane and her work and had a true partner on this topic. And as you'll hear today in our conversation, we explore what's normal sexual behavior in kids and youth? A tough question for any parent or any colleague. And how do we stop problematic sexual behaviors? How do we identify them and stop them when we see them? What treatment actually works? And how do we involve families in their own healing and success? And finally, how do we get beyond billboards and bus kiosks to doing the kind of prevention work that actually matters? To find out, take a listen. Welcome to One in 10, Jane. I've known you for a few years, but you know, I don't think I've ever heard you talk about how you came to work with youth with problematic sexual
1: behaviors. Can you just tell us a little bit about what brought you to that work? Thank you, Teresa. And thank you for inviting me to be part of the the podcast. I've really enjoyed our team's collaboration with the National Children's Alliance over the years. Uh, So how did I get to the work of children with problematic sexual behavior? That story is connected to why I'm in Oklahoma at the Health Sciences Center, and that's Dr. Barbara Bonner. Dr. Bonner was the director of our Center on Child Abuse and Neglect and uh, director of our program for both adolescents and school age kids with problematic sexual behavior. And I was wanting to work in the area of child abuse and neglect broadly, I really actually didn't know what problematic sexual behavior of youth was at the time. And Dr. Bonner's program was really nationally known for its training in child abuse and neglect. And in working with her, I learned more about that child sexual abuse and sexual assault occurred not only at the hands of adults, but that youth can have problematic sexual behavior and learned more about them, their history, and most importantly, what kind of approach and treatment helps for them to get on the right path uh, and make good decisions about relationships and themselves. And so I am very fortunate to be mentored by her and Dr. Mark Chaffin, who was also here at the Center on Child Abuse and Neglect and working with our adolescents and and looking specifically at the research around uh, what's effective programming for these youth.
0: So one of the things that I want to start with is I think this is an area where lots of people just don't really have any sense of how prevalent it is or how common it may be um, or what percentage of cases this can arise in. Can you just talk
1: a little bit about that to sort of catch the audience up to speed with your knowledge? It's a great question. How many kids out there, how many kids have problematic sexual behavior of youth And uh, what's really interesting, if you look at your own data, National Children's Alliance data, and looking at when youth have acted out or or is listed as the, quote, um, offender of the cases, it's 20 to 25% of those cases. It's a youth who've acted out. Um, and, And what we know, unfortunately, ends up being piecemeal across different agencies. Some of these kids end up in child protective services. And so they have some stats around it. Sometimes these kids end up in law enforcement. And so there's data around law enforcement and uh, juvenile justice, where it looks like about a third of child sexual abuse cases are committed by youth. But all of that still is an incomplete picture. And it's important to look at what the youth are saying. And Dr. David Finkelhor and his colleagues published a very interesting paper where they did just that. And they asked children about experiences of sexual assault, sexual abuse, and found that over 70% of those cases, it was another youth who acted out upon them. So, I think we're at the tip of the iceberg of really understanding how prevalent problematic sexual behavior, particularly interpersonal problematic sexual behavior of youth, is out there.
0: You know, I appreciate you talking about this range of statistics because I think part of what it tells us is that this is a more common problem than people think often in the general public. And I think even within the child abuse professional setting, sometimes they find these numbers a little bit surprising. I just want to, you know, to make sure that we're kind of talking about the same thing. When we say problematic sexual behaviors, can you talk a little bit about what that definition covers or what it, the range of behaviors that it really encompasses? I think sometimes it's the first time someone's heard that term. And so they're not quite sure what we mean when we say problematic versus something else.
1: To think about what's problematic sexual behavior, it's important to first think about what is normative or typical sexual behavior and to recognize even very young kids have typical sexual behavior and knowledge and will do things like play doctor, ask questions about body parts, show body parts in a silly way, when you're thinking about a three or four year old uh, who might pull down their pants and just be silly. So there's these kinds of typical behaviors that occur, Spontaneous. that is a part of trying to figure out how the world works, how their body works. There's no ill intent, there's no harm to someone else. However, there are sexual behaviors of youth and uh, among other youth that would cross the line to be concerning or problematic. So these are not typical sexual behaviors. Uh, they're occurring potentially in a planned way. They're not being responsive to parental interventions. You are trying to guide them into the right behavior, but they continue to occur They may be occurring among kids that um, wouldn't otherwise be playing together. So there might be an age difference or developmental difference or size difference uh, such that there really isn't a way that they all can be agreeing to these kinds of behaviors. And uh, in addition to that, some sexual behaviors make sense to be typical, sort of spontaneous curiosity-driven. behaviors are much more adult intimate behaviors That would not be something just uh, as a spontaneous learning experience, but instead be of concern of where did that child learn that behavior and the impact of those behaviors on the kids involved.
0: You know, I think it's such a helpful frame to to start out by reminding people that kids you know as a part of their normal development are also sexual beings and so they have interest in explorations and curiosities but that is not the same as really what we're talking about here and i'm wondering you know how is it and i think i get this question in child abuse all the time why do some people do blah 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 i'm sure you get this question about youth with problematic sexual behaviors you know what is it that makes a youth or a kid, just sort of veer from these sort of curious,
1: spontaneous behaviors to something that is concerning. When you're thinking about where does problematic sexual behavior come from in the first place, the go-to most people have is they must have been sexually abused. And certainly that is something that needs to be considered in understanding how this particular child may have developed their problematic sexual behavior. Uh, In fact, that was something that I thought of when I began our preschool program and research on preschool kids with problematic sexual behavior. I thought, if you are that young, if you're four or five, you must have been sexually abused to have problematic sexual behavior. Well, this is why you do research and really look at what are the the possible pathways that lead to it. So I was surprised initially when instead of finding 85, 90% of these kids having a clear history of sexual abuse, it was closer to a third. So we looked further and further into it because we know, and this audience knows probably better than most, that trying to substantiate child sexual abuse with preschool kids is quite challenging and so we looked, well, what are the reasons it wasn't substantiated and, and, and looked at uh, all those factors? And and it looked like it's about 50 or 60 percent of the kids that we were seeing had a sexual abuse history. But that meant 40, 50 percent of them didn't. So where is that coming from? Multiple pathways need to be considered. One that I think now comes to mind is the impact of technology. Kids have access in in more ways than imaginable to the world through phones and iPad games and the television and movies. And the ability to make sure all of that is child friendly content is becoming more and more difficult to everybody parents, caregivers, educators. And so kids are getting exposed to sexualized content and may not really be able to wrap their head around that information. And that may cause some curiosity to act out those behaviors and lead them down a pathway that becomes more and more problematic. Outside of those areas are different kinds of vulnerabilities and protective factors that can combine that lead to a variety of decisions that kids can make. One of the things to consider is how the world around them deals with conflict and high levels of emotion. And so if they're raised with harsh parenting practices, physical abuse, domestic violence, they can grow up to be very emotionally dysregulated, believe that to get what I want, we do with force and aggression, as opposed to being really able to learn to express feelings in a healthy way and be able to have reasoned decision-making. And that, that can lead them to break a variety of boundary rules, including problematic sexual behavior. There are factors that can make kids and caregivers more vulnerable. So kids learn how to follow the rules in the right way by their parents, caregivers and other guardians being there to teach them and educate them. So when you have caregivers who are working multiple jobs or depressed or abusing substances or other things that take them away from that guidance, kids may begin something that would be more innocent and curiosity-driven, but then don't have the guidance to get them back on track, and that escalates into something more problematic.
0: I don't remember which piece of research I read, or whether it was you or someone else said it, but to your point, was sort of talking about um, the sort of chaos in a family or a chaotic family as also some driver there. And I thought that that was really interesting because it's not something that we would immediately think of necessarily. Um, but when you think about what that means in terms of kids kind of left to their own devices, you can see how that would be true as you're describing it. And I'm wondering, because you're kind of talking also about some myths that have existed out there, and I appreciate you debunking some. Are there other things that you say, this is a myth that comes up all the time. I wish people would stop saying this. It's not backed by research and science, and it's really detrimental for kids.
1: So in terms of other things that people assume about kids with problematic sexual behavior that really is not developmentally appropriate, a big one that comes to mind is seeing them somehow equivalent to an adult who has pedophilia. Mm-hmm. Uh, and an, an adult who may have uh, sexually abused many kids, yes, and really needing to to look at adult and the response to that in a very different light than when we look at children, and instead to see them as children first, and assess the risk and protective factors that are leading to these behaviors, and also can get them on a better pathway, and a piece that is very rare but often assumed as a present is this inappropriate arousal
0: mm. toward
1: younger kids mm. or toward other things that aren't considered really healthy. Um, when, uh, in fact, it is quite rare, even with adult, uh, excuse me, with adolescents, with sexual behavior problems or illegal sexual behavior, it's very rare that you find that they have, uh, inappropriate arousal toward younger kids. That's a a tiny sliver of the kids that... uh, Well, thank goodness, right? Right.
0: You know that that is a small percentage of them, but that's, I think it's interesting and for many people would be surprising because somehow they assume that that must be what's really driving the behavior as opposed to other kinds of things as you've described it. That's... It's really an interesting point that you're making and I think kind of has led down a public policy path. This assumption that kids are like adults, that adolescents are like adults has led to some unfortunate and I think really in some cases actively harmful public policy ways that we treat, you know, kids in terms of uh, putting them on Sex offender registry is intended for adults and other kinds of things, which we can talk about a little bit more in a minute. But I'm wondering, you know, if you were encountering a new professional who may have their first case that involves a youth with a problematic sexual behavior, and you had just a minute to say, okay, I don't have time to teach you a course, and there's probably some good research you need to read. But here are the things I think you absolutely have to know going into this case beyond kids are not adults. So don't treat them like that. What would you say? What would you say that professionals have to keep in mind and use that lens at all times?
1: Things to really consider when you're approaching cases of uh, kids with problematic sexual behavior actually hits another one of the myths. So another myth is that it's important to utilize treatment strategies that are used with adults when in fact they are ineffective and inappropriate with children again and again with the research demonstrates to effectively address problematic sexual behavior, you must work with the family. The caregivers need to be an active part of the treatment and part of understanding how to teach and support the child to use healthy coping, address any traumatic experiences that they've had and be able to have good boundaries understand consent, and make good decisions around relationships. And that means talking about (laughs) S-E-X and talking about these very... um mm. topics that parents will try to avoid um mm, more mm. than maybe even cleaning the toilet <laughs> um, but but it is something that's important for them to establish as being the person that can help them figure out what growing up and healthy relationships are understanding that all parents know all the answers But we want our kids to come to our caregivers for that support and that the caregivers then have the support to find the answers that's good for their family.
0: You know, as you were talking, I was thinking about one of the things that I saw as a CAC director, which is, you know, when you offered mental health care, typically to families, you would have some people who took it up immediately, some people who would wait, some people who would say yes, but not go to appointments. What struck me about this population is parents are at their wits end, in part because often the child has acted out on a neighborhood child or someone in the family or extended family or in the school. So there's a lot going on um, by the time a parent comes to a children's advocacy center about this. And what I just found is that parents felt so desperate that they really followed through on mental health referrals around this. And I was just so grateful because... You know, it wasn't a matter of like, let's turn on the motivational interviewing technique and really get persuade them the value of it. They were like, you know, thank goodness somebody can help with this. Because often I think in some cases they hadn't really wanted to admit to themselves that things were pretty out of control because they had no idea what to do once they acknowledged that or even that anyone could help at all. And I don't know if you see that in your practice. Maybe you want to talk a little bit about caregivers. And how important they are in our work with them is, because I do think it's critical.
1: Yeah, when caregivers learn that this may have occurred with their children, it's an emotional roller coaster. I mean, if we could all put ourselves in the shoes, what would you do if you heard your child has been accused of having acted out sexually with another child? You know, our reactions aren't going to be immediately, let's open the door, let's figure this out, but they can get there. And what the parents have said is what they need is someone to listen, to hear their story, to be able to share what we know about these youth and dispel the myths that the parents also have about them, and to be able to do this in a way that they don't feel they're blamed, but rather the key to the solution. So when parents get the message of, we are so glad you're here, joining with you is what's going to help your son or daughter get on the right track. And there are resources to help you on that path. Then they are grateful, they're joined. And yes, I think you're absolutely right, actively engaged in the therapy.
0: One of the things that I was struck by, I was thinking about the materials that the collaborative work group put together some years ago for caregivers. And I don't know where the quote came from, I can't remember now, but it was a caregiver talking about the stigma and shame they felt around this. And I think a lot of our work in children's advocacy centers and as child abuse uh, professionals can be about you know, helping a parent set aside those feelings and diminish those because you can't really effectively seek help if you're feeling completely filled with shame and stigma by virtue of what's happened. And I I just think that's an important role for all of us. And I'm sure that, you know, you see that in your own treatment population as well.
1: Yes. Hear them, hear their feelings and help reframe this, that they are doing the best job that they can as a parent. And if there can be uh, the ability to have a group treatment program, that's been a wonderful way for parents to be able to actively address that sense of shame and guilt because they've got wraparound support from other parents who've gone through the experiences and can help them really see a light at the end of the tunnel. Now, not every program would be able to do a group, and that's why we have resources developed by our Parent Partnership Board that they can pull in and sort of other parents have gone through this and share those resources with the parents, even in a family-based approach with them.
0: You know, one of the things as you were talking, I appreciated you using an example, he or she, and I think I'd like you to talk a little bit about this myth, (laughs) because I think that exists too, that there are no she's. And so can you just talk a little bit about who are these kids generally in terms of, you know, is there a most vulnerable age for sort of falling into this behavior or sort of a critical developmental period we need to be paying attention to, you know,
1: And and all the rest of it, including gender and those sorts of things. Yeah, thank you. There's, like I mentioned earlier, a a lot of factors that come into play that bring additional vulnerabilities for youth. Um, One particular time of growing up that can be challenging for youth uh, and my heart goes out to all middle school teachers is uh, this this age from 12 yes. to 14 where there's lots of hormones going through and as we say their frontal cortex isn't fully developed so their understanding and reasoning and impulse control and all of those Things that help us as adults make really good decisions aren't all in sync. And they're getting washed with hormones and on emotional roller coasters and trying to figure out who they are and, and their identity. And, and so that time in particular is a vulnerable time for problematic sexual behavior. And you'll see a peak in law enforcement and juvenile justice involvement with these youth from about 12 to 14 The youth and adolescents do tend to be more males. However, we have kids who are problematic sexual behavior of all genders throughout the whole continuum. In fact, uh, for our preschool kids, we've seen more girls than boys uh, being uh, sent for services for problematic sexual behaviors. Uh, So there's a, a range of contributing factors there. Right. So rather than looking at single things, really being able to understand what in that child's world are protective factors that's helping them be able to make good decisions, what are the kinds of things that might be more vulnerable that would lead to uh, struggling with connecting well in a healthy way with others?
0: You know, we've referenced treatment several times. Now I want to talk about it a little bit because I think that Again, I, I guess we're going into this theme of myths here, but one myth that does exist about youth, which I think comes from both understanding and misunderstanding of adult treatment, is this idea that it's sort of hopeless, you know, that nothing helps, no one gets better, those kinds of things. Can you? And actually, when you're talking about youth with problematic sexual behaviors, I mean, there's just a lot to be hopeful about and just a real bright spot with the effectiveness of treatment. Can you just talk about that? Because I remember the first time I heard the statistics around this and the numbers, I was like, thank goodness something
1: works. Right. Yes, absolutely. What we're finding, if we look at official recidivism research of recidivism rates of adolescents that are below 3%, 10, 20 years in the future, very low percentage of recidivism. And that can be true also in looking at treatment for children with problematic sexual behavior. The the characteristics of the treatments that have been found effective in addressing PSB, once again, as I mentioned earlier, actively involves caregivers and directly addresses being able to help those youth make good decisions, address sexual education topics, have good boundaries, and uh, understand things like consent and so forth. And the other piece that's really important about these treatments is they can be done in the community. So a myth around them is that when you identify a child, that they need to be sent away to some specialized treatment for many, many years, and that somehow that treatment will do some magic and they can come back out and become productive members of society, when in fact keeping them in the community and working with the caregivers is the key to their success. Um, And to be able to help them do well in school, in their neighborhood, in their home, relies on being in the community. The treatments will vary a bit by their age, intensity, level of other needs, but these treatments are completable in four to nine months, uh, depending on those types of factors.
0: Well, and it seems to me this has to be a little bit of a relief to caregivers too. you know, the fact that effective treatments can also be relatively short term in the grand scheme of things. And I think that that's very hopeful and also helpful to people scheduled to know that. You know, it may feel a little intensive in early days, but it's not something the family is hopefully going to have to be involved in um, long term. I want to turn a little bit now sort of from the treatment piece of this and families to policymaking. And I'm wondering what you see in the policy arena that makes you hopeful and what you would say to yourself, you know, if I could change anything either at the state or federal or local level in terms of policy around these kiddos, you know, here's what I would want to see changed.
1: So problematic sexual behavior is probably best conceptualized as a public health and behavioral health issue. Mm. And yet how it's addressed is often through multiple disciplines who may not fully appreciate the perspective of that. And the best services have been found when you can have all of those members working together collaboratively with a goal of rehabilitation and support. So what does that mean? That means we would need to be able to have policies that support identifying youth in a way that helps them engage in services in the families. So one of the policies that has been a hiccup in many states is child protective services involvement in these youth. A lot of the state laws around uh, hotline referrals specifically address when a caregiver has abused or neglected a child. And so hotline referrals of a child acting out on another child ends up being screened out in many, if not most states. Well, what do you do at that point? Well, whoever called may feel like I've done what I can. It should be taken care of. The family may not even be aware a call was made. And Child Protective Services is is saying, well, this isn't under our purview, so we don't move forward. The end result is that child doesn't get the help they need. So different states are doing different things. Some of them are looking at, if we stay with screened out, can we screen out but into a warm handoff to services? And partner with children's advocacy centers or others to help those families get into services. Other states are saying, no, let's screen them in because that gives us the opportunity to meet with the family, do an assessment or investigation as needed, and then help make sure there's safety planning and leading to evidence-based services. You know, which one is best? We're, I think, as a nation still trying to figure out, but how can we keep the kids from falling through those cracks and getting into services? Another area of legislation is around um, legal law enforcement. When does charges occur? And if charges occur, is there options for deferred prosecution or diversion? Or are those choices restricted because of the charge of a sex offense itself? And what we're seeing in some areas is some desire to really broaden that rather than all of these kids are fully charged on probation for years and and often involving detention and out-of-home placement, looking at the youth by their risk and protective factors and what makes the most sense for them and really looking at that initial investigation and assessment to guide that. And that can be true specifically also with the sex offender registration and notification laws that right now with the restrictions of it, kids will automatically be placed on registration for lifetime at young ages, even school age kids where the accumulation of research that has been done indicates that that doesn't contribute to an increase of safety, and in fact can cause more harm to the child with increase of suicidality and mental health issues and other ill effects. So really needing to look at these policies and are they doing more harm than good? And what would be new policies with the goal of public health and safety and helping those children establish well-being.
0: It seems to me that part of, you know, shifting policy is also shifting a mindset about these kids and seeing them as kids, seeing them as youth and not as monsters or mini predators or any of the other kinds of, you know, labels that have been used sometimes that have been, I think, harmful and really required a culture shift. You know, I remember when we first started talking in children's advocacy centers about um, youth with problematic sexual behavior, it really required in many teams, a language change, a mental shift, those kinds of things. And it feels to me like that same sort of thing needs to happen in our culture at large and with policymakers as well.
1: Oh yeah, I agree, and I think there's some nice concerted efforts to try to really embed better information about these youth in child abuse prevention efforts, um, and um, being able to really raise a greater awareness. one thing that may help this process is there is greater concern among parents about what our kids are being exposed to. So that might have a a more even play field that can say, well, any kid could have been exposed to Mm -hmm. pornography and other kinds of things and, and made these poor decisions and how do we help kids make better decisions? And that also includes, um, even kids that may have that very unusual, but um, uh, sexual arousal toward younger kids. And and that's Elizabeth Letourneau's work in trying to prevent those kids from acting out on those thoughts and feelings and making better decisions for themselves and and those around them.
0: But, you know, I think that many CACs are involved in prevention work, and it feels to me like this is just one end of that continuum of prevention services and probably a lot more effective than a billboard. Honestly, It's like if you want to invest in prevention, invest here. I just wonder, you've been working you know, with CACs and with NCA for a while now, and you have their ear right now as a part of this podcast. Is there anything that you'd like to just see in CACs or with multidisciplinary teams that you don't currently
1: see or that you'd like to see more of than you currently see? I mean, I work with some pretty incredible children's advocacy centers and have been just overwhelmingly impressed with their dedication to children and families and providing them with the services that will help them address trauma and and to heal. Um, I would say what I'd like to see More of across the nation is children's advocacy centers building on their collaboration with key team members to bring into the fold an understanding of problematic sexual behavior of youth. Maybe bringing in some partners that uh, were more aside to be more Uh, really within the fold of their teams. Juvenile justice would be an example. Many have connections with schools, but bringing in that school partner even more so to be able to prevent problematic sexual behavior as well as to address in a developmentally appropriate way.
0: In so many communities, CACs really are the local child abuse expert, and whatever system they have is the child abuse response system, period. And so I think we do have a unique role in being able to influence the work of the team and fill in gaps that need to be filled in. I'm just wondering, we've been talking for a while, and maybe there's some key question I forgot to ask you or something you'd really like to talk about. Is there anything,
1: any question that I didn't ask you, but I should have? One of the things I am seeing lately, Teresa, is that's a shift this last year and a half and understandable with COVID and all the other stressors on the CACs is the need for for Mm. self-care. the, the need for bringing in the MDT and pausing around what do we need to do to really take care of ourselves? Cause if we don't, we can't take care of our kids in the way we want. Mm. Everyone sounds and feels very stretched thin yes, and overwhelmed and Zoomed out. <laughs> Indeed. And so the thought of taking on something big like problematic sexual behavior or um, sexually exploited children or all, all these other big topics that the children's advocacy centers are amazing to do and grow, it's, I think it's just different now because it's harder to partner if everybody is, is hanging by a thread.
0: It's so true. And I think that, you know, one of the points that you're raising is this comes at such a critical time, too. You know, it's everybody is exhausted, hanging by a thread. And at the same time, kids have just gone back to school. And so, you know, that there are going to be more of these cases that come forward just naturally because of that. And in fact, we've seen an uptick in our numbers. And I think it's a good reminder that, you know, we have to put on our own oxygen mask first before we can start helping. Others and be good teammates to each other as well when we're talking about these cases that are often very sensitive to begin with.
1: And I think it's particularly sh- true when you're talking about problematic sexual behavior of youth because it brings a lot of energy and emotion and concern and myths and misunderstanding. Uh, and there there's also been significant bias in responses. And so some of our research has demonstrated that youth who are poor and youth who are uh, black or American Indian may be more likely to be charged uh, and go through a juvenile justice system as a response, as opposed to families that come with wealth or families that are white. And so being able to look at that and being able to say, Let's make things different requires a sense of of safety and support. That when everyone is is already wrung out, it, it just makes that whole work a little bit harder.
0: I think that's unquestionably true, and I think that it also, you know, there was a period of time, especially, I mean, maybe we're still feeling it now for sure, but but I feel like even earlier on people were just at the end of their tether in terms of all that they had gone through with the pandemic. And so you would come to a case without the sort of emotional reservoir that allows you to be calm and think about the family in front of you instead of, oh my God, I have another case. I can't believe I have another case when I'm already this tired. And it's just a good reminder that part of our work is really being present for the work and for the family that's in front of us. And we have to take care of ourselves you know to do that. So I appreciate that because I know that also you're just like could you please serve these kids. <laughs> so I know I know it's a balancing act with that but thank you. Thank you for for saying that. Well, I just want to just share with you just how impactful this work has been that we've done in partnership with you and your colleagues. I have found it to be some of the most impactful work that we've done and that we feel so proud of to be in partnership, because I really do see it making such a difference. And not only for the youth with problematic sexual behaviors, but for the child on the receiving end of that behavior, you know, and in so many families, it can help strengthen family relationships. So just thank you. And I know that we're going to continue to partner with you. And as you publish more research and have other insights, we would love to have you back on one in 10.
1: Thank you. I realized one thing I didn't talk about were the resources that are available. Oh, please do. The National Children's Alliance Own uh, Learning Center Engage is creating a whole section on problematic sexual behavior of youth. There is one now, but it's being revised uh, where a number of resources are being added, including archived webinars uh, from the past. Uh, so, we're hoping that this will provide uh, CACs and their partners uh, easier access to resources on problematic sexual behavior of youth. And this year, we will have a, a webinar specifically designed for law enforcement and that comes from our survey of the CACs in terms of what kinds of other topics would they would like, and they really wanted more professionally specific webinars. And so we started out with this law enforcement one and a resource guide on helping decision-making around forensic interviewing when there's cases of problematic sexual behavior of youth is in the, the final steps of being Finalized, and then also will be on the website.
0: I'm telling you, you could not have sold that any better than I could, Jane. I love it. Yes, there are. And for those listeners who are not members of NCA, but are child abuse professionals, a lot of this is also on our website and not only in the Learning Center. So you are just absolutely uh, welcome to access that there. Well, Jane, thank you again for being so generous with your time. And we'll look forward to talking to you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to 1 in 10. If you like this episode, please share it with a friend. And for more information about our important work on youth with problematic sexual behaviors, go to the NCA website at www.nationalchildrensalliance.org.